Hello and welcome back to the Teacher Takeaway podcast. This is season two, episode 34, and we're focusing on planning and programming. I am your co-host, Alice Figures, and I'm joined for this episode by the wonderful Aaron Johnston. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. And unfortunately, the lovely Beck West and James Gray are MIA tonight. So it'll just yes. be it's the 18, Aaron maybe. and I, the Dream Team, and Stella. <laughs> Stella hey, is Stella. making another appearance for this episode. We are looking at the inquiry question how do we effectively plan and program for teaching and learning? Definitely a big topic and we could potentially go down a bit of a rabbit hole, Aaron, I feel. Let's start by looking at paper versus digital. What's your preference, Aaron? Um, Okay, so I am a digital programmer. Only, I guess, recently in the last couple of years have I fully gone digital. Um, So I use OneNote for my programming, obviously, and I use Beckwest's um, template. Thanks, Beck. Love it. Makes my life super easy. Um, And for me, I use that across all of my devices. So um, probably usually beginning, end of the day, I'm on my laptop in my program throughout the day when I'm doing groups and things like that, it's on my iPad. So I've got the apps obviously installed on my iPad and I'm making notes and annotating my program as I go while I'm doing things on my iPad. Um, I just love that I can get on any device and, and update it where I need to, wherever I am. Um, previously to that, before using OneNote, I used Evernote, which is a similar kind of software. Um, probably not as user-friendly as OneNote, but that is another one I've used in the past as well. Yeah, right. I haven't used Evernote before and I've looked at OneNote but never used it to program. I am a digital programmer as well um, and mine, I just use the good old trusty Google Apps for education. Yep. Um, so I set mine kind of up with different folders for each subject area and within each of those folders is the program related to that term or that semester's um learning and just use um google docs and we have like a a um standard performer that we use for the different key learning areas yeah just type straight into and and like you aaron i um have that accessible on you know other devices whether it be my laptop or um an iPad or something like that that yep. I can access yep. when, you know, when I need to, so I'm not, you know, always tied to a desktop. Yeah, yep. What, what about before you were digital? What what did your program look like before you went digital? I was a like a folder with basically what my OneNote is, like one binder with all the little tabs down the side for the different KLAs and the different units and things in there um, for each tab, and I would take notes in in it that way yeah I think I definitely had a moment in my teaching career where that was the practice that I had and I think I kind of picked that up from like the practice teachers yes that I that I had because that was their practice one of the schools that I um, worked at used kind of clipboards and each clipboard 
was a different KLA and you had this stand and you see some people using them to store their digital devices, but they kind of all stood up and so that anybody that walked in the room could just pick up that clipboard that had your program for the, you know, however many weeks or days or whatever, however you programmed, and they could pick it up and take it and teach it. Um, They didn't have to go finding um, a folder or look on a digital system, um, which seemed to work quite well was the school where we actually had casuals. So that that practice was very beneficial and in helping to kind of keep the continuity of learning happening when now some of our casuals didn't have access to some of, you know, the systems that we used. So um, that seemed to work quite well. And then, you know, at the end of the cycle or the term, you just take that that stuff off the clipboard and, and put it into a folder. I know I've seen um, not clipboards, but a similar thing um, even in my um, context at the moment where some people have, say, a folder for each KLA and if they're teaching science, they just get grab a science folder and the, the unit of work's in there. Yeah, I think it kind of just depends on your context that you're teaching in and the, and the expectations of your school around paper-based versus digital yeah. platforms and what that kind of setup looks like um when you're programming what does your kind of um time frame look like like how many weeks do you generally program for yeah so for me it's usually my literacy and my numeracy is weekly so program that week to week and I don't even necessarily program the full week um because with some things I just don't know sort of how the first couple of lessons are going to go so I kind of even roughly program but no I'm obviously going to adjust um those particular key areas so literacy and numeracy is for me so when we're talking literacy I'm talking about um, like especially particularly writing, reading, those key literacy areas, we program those week to week because it's heavily based on student needs, whether they're the focus that we're, that we're doing. We really try and backward map and teach to point of need in those key areas. So some of the things I might have in my head, I want to move on, but maybe I can't yet. Um, so the, those ones, I, I tend to, for me, I sit down on a Sunday afternoon and start to map out those things for the week ahead. Um, we have like obviously key groups that we tend to put kids in, say for reading groups, we do like a five week cycle, um, as well. So they're the kids sort of stay in those groups for five weeks, but some of those learning sequences for that five week block, I'll still program week by week. Um, but we sort of do that five week cycle of, okay, this group, this is going to be their goal that we're going to work towards over the five weeks. Yeah. And then all of our other KLAs, we tend to program the full term ahead um, and obviously make notes and changes as we go. Yeah, it's interesting um, in terms of like my practice and what that looks like for me is literacy and numeracy, I'd plan kind of like a a fortnight sequence of learning Um, like with literacy I centre everything around a high quality text and our reading and our phonics and our um, 
spelling and our writing are all kind of stem from that. Yeah. And even though I might, like I'll do a detailed plan kind of for that first week in the fortnight and a rough mud mat for the second week and then it's very responsive to what I'm seeing and noticing, observing and hearing from the students and the way that the product of learning that I'm looking for from the students is evolving and, you know, obviously based on what they're showing me that can go in different directions. Um, The other key learning areas, um, I kind of plan, generally like to plan in five-week cycles. Um, I, where possible, try to um, integrate the other key learning areas into um, literacy and numeracy. So I like to keep them, you know, relatively connected, which helps to support the learning um, process. And so I generally don't go too far ahead because then I kind of find that I feel more restricted or more like, you know, I've planned it and it was really good, but it's not, you know, where the kids are at at this point in time, but I don't want to get rid of it. You know, those kind of like, oh, I'm kind of torn. Um, So, yeah, generally literacy and numeracy is fortnightly and the others are kind of five-weekly cycles and reflections and modifications along the way. Yep. What do your units of work kind of look like when you're starting to plan it out, map it out and develop it? So for us, like obviously being in New South Wales, we've got like obviously the NESA um, requirements around what you have to have in a unit of work. We have tended, I guess, to stick with it, I guess a template or a pro forma for most of our units of work. Um, that is fairly similar to what used to be called program builder where it had all the drop down boxes and you just picked what you wanted. Cause I guess that's sort of like a NESA approved kind of format where you're making sure yeah. it's got, you know, what the outcomes are, how many weeks or lessons the unit's going for, you know, it's got all the correct bits that you need to have. So we tend to have, I guess, sort of those standard pro formers for, our KLA units that we use Um, and then teachers with their groupings and things like that. It's very flexible. Teachers tend to um, either develop their own sort of pro forma. I know some of them have obviously purchased them or downloaded them from different, you know, people that make resources. So each sort of teacher, their literacy group template is a little bit different for me personally. The ones that I use are ones I've tweaked and developed over time because it just suits me and the way I like to program those like key areas where I'm grouping and teaching to point of need. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like I said, when we plan our main units of work, we tend to use that program builder style template, which has, you know, all the right things um, looking at those NECA, NESA, NECA, NESA check, <laughs> checklists that you have to have, you know, those very clear that a unit of work has to include, blah, 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 blah. Making yeah, outcomes, sure those, stuff, Yes, yeah. all those things are in there. Um, and we tend to just have, yeah, like a standard format template that's got our school logo on it that we use. Yeah, so in terms of our kind of expectations at school, we've got a most kind of follow a similar kind of mud map. They all look a little bit similar with a bit of a, you know, a tweak and a flair based on the, the teacher's preference and um, 
you know, the way that they like to plan and program for different kind of units. One of the things that I personally like to put in units is um, kind of the identification of the assessment for as and of learning as yeah. it goes as opposed to just seeing your summative assessment at the end, really highlighting yeah. that as part of yeah, I, I was going to say that's one thing we do as well. We we call it an assessment plan and yeah. we have to make sure that we, with that unit of work, we've got those clearly identified, like what are the assessment opportunities and whether they are for as of learning. Mm. Um, like I said, to see that balance. Yes, yeah. I think one of the things, um, we're a self-selector school, so one of the things that we've been looking at in terms of the new curriculum and the planning and programming process is looking at how we connect, explicitly connect in our planning and our programming things like progression links yeah. so that when we are engaging the students with formative assessment tasks, that those direct links of, of learning behaviours are connected and we can go, okay, here is exactly what I'm looking for in terms of the observable behaviours and yes. when I go to enter that data into plan, I'm not having to go, oh, maybe it was this one, maybe it was that one. It's all directly linked and highlighted and and it's, you know, kind of there ready to go. Yes, yep. Rightio. What about processes? What are the things that you like to do when you are sitting down to plan and program? So we really heavily focus on, I guess, like that backward mapping approach. So really starting from the end in mind. So really starting to build our unit of work around what is the outcome, what are the indicators, and what is it that we're going to assess? What's the thing we're going to be looking for at the end? Mm. So making sure that not that we're, I guess, teaching to the assessment, but we're actually teaching the kids equipping them with the skills that they're going to need say at the end of the unit to be successful yeah. um really coming back to I guess what are the learning intentions really success criteria for the overall unit of work and how are we going to I guess effectively assess that and then mm. building the learning around that um rather than I know previously um from you know my own experiences and things where we program all these units of work and then we go oh what's my assessment going to be yeah, And yeah. then sometimes your assessment isn't at all to do with all these great learning experiences that I've taught. So yeah. that's that's the approach that we tend to take is that backwards mapping approach. Yeah, which I think is really important that, you know, we are starting with that, that end in mind. And I know when we um, spoke with Trevor McKenzie a couple of weeks ago that he was, you know, really big on knowing what it is that you want students to produce as their product of learning based on the skills and the knowledge and the content that you've taught them along the way, having a really clear understanding of what that is helps you to go, okay, here's how I'm going to chunk the skills, the knowledge, the content to help yes, the kids yes. get to this point. So it's like, you know, if you think about an elite athlete, they don't just go, right, I'm going to win a medal at the Olympics and I'm not going to put anything in place to help me get there. I'm just going to go, right, I'm going to train two days a week and I'm going to make the Olympics. You know, yeah. there's all of these little skills and components and, 
you know, things that have to occur along the way in order to be able to achieve that big, broader goal. And learning with our students is no different. It's Yes, that's right. It's, it's that chunking of skills. And, you know, I know early on in my career, I was very much that person that was like, oh, yeah, we'll do all these wonderful activities and, oh, we'll just do this as an assessment. But it wasn't actually really related to the, the knowledge and the skills and the content yes. that I had taught. And then you wonder why students don't do as well on those summative assessment tasks. Um, and I think probably I'd want to say mathematics is the area that probably happens the most. Yeah. yeah. You know, kind of generalising here, but I think it's the area where I feel like teachers, they go, right, I've got to teach fractions and I'm just going to teach them you know this 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 and this and oh this will do as an assessment at the end but it may may or may not have you know really closely related to what it is that you taught them um, as part of the you know those processes the fluency of mathematics Yeah. Um, yeah it's it's a very interesting process you know the whole planning component of our of our job and it's one I think um, is very complex and it's often I guess overlooked for its complexity like it's yeah definitely yeah it's an interesting one it's my happy place I do love a bit of planning and programming yeah yeah I'm the I'm the person that you know in holidays is planning and programming because I really get a kick out of doing it yes um but you know I know not everybody is like that <laughs> and that is totally fine um so let's say you've got this beautiful plan you you know you've programmed it out you've started with the end in mind you've backward mapped it you're in the process of teaching it how do you annotate what are those quality meaningful annotations look like for you so a big one for me, I tend to leave um, with a lot of our units of work, I leave a section and for each lesson where it's broken up into lessons. I have sections where I leave blank and that is for obviously differentiation adjustments um, where I can note those down. And because I'm doing digital, I tend to just type into those boxes um, and obviously date it. So I'm typing, just jotting notes on the the paper obviously signing and dating um is important as well initialing like when it was taught registering like the lesson was done but making notes of differentiation what am I doing to adjust the content what and even sometimes where you go this activity didn't work or I need to repeat this because it took you know longer than I needed to I thought it would take or the kids didn't yeah. grasp it as quickly so being honest in my annotations it doesn't always have to be signed dated the lesson's perfect it can be uh, actually I had to rewrite or redo the activities or this is this hasn't worked I'll have to do it again tomorrow yeah. um, those honest annotations are important oh absolutely and I'm you know being a digital programmer as well I'm very much write all over the program so that yeah, by the yeah. end of you know the fortnight cycle or the five-week cycle or whatever the cycle is I have and I always use a different color I was going to say mine's like a rainbow yeah so I all of my annotations I do in red 
so that you can clearly see the things that I've added in. So, you know, in my program, you'll see where I've added in learning experiences um, to, you know, extend the learning process or because like you said, they just weren't quite grasping the concept that I wanted them to do. And so I had to add additional learning experiences to support that or deviate from the initial plan that I had in place because it just wasn't going the direction that I wanted it to. Yeah. And so I I pop all of those in um, and it's then clearly easy to see those, you know, differentiations and the the shifts that I've made in my teaching along the way. I also um, have an evaluation column that just kind of runs down the side of my program and that I just complete um, as I go. You know, obviously you've got your your initialing and your dating um, happening, but looking at kind of recording observational notes about the student's thinking or the questions that they're asking or, um, you know, notes about the way that they're responding to stimuluses or the way they're responding to peers or um, the way they're responding to the questions that I'm asking them is often what I capture in that column. So it's not, you never, you know, see anything like, oh, this was a really good activity or, you know, this worked really well you know, in terms of evaluation and, and feedback that doesn't really, when I go to look back, tell me anything. Um, yeah. I kind of see my program as almost like having informal reporting comments in there. You know, there's so many things that we are observing and noticing from our students every day in all of the subjects and come report time, we sit there and go, oh, my God, like, <laughs> you know, I, they, I did this lesson and they, this student did really well, but I wanted to remember, you know, that, that X, Y, or Z about that child. Yes. And so in my program I capture things like that. So come report time I can look back and go, oh, yep, you know, this is exactly what I wanted to report on around how the student is engaging with others, how they're, you know, thinking critically or creatively or, you know, that peer-to-peer or self-assessment processes, um, engagement, you know, with content and that kind of stuff. So oftentimes you'll see in my annotations a a grid of just observations as I go and just compiling different notes, um, which I find really valuable looking back as I, um, you know, engage parents in informal reporting about their student or during the formal reporting period, which is what we're in now. Yes. Yeah. You've got all that information there. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of really supports that building of that bigger picture so that I don't feel like I have to do all of this massive amount of testing because I've forgotten, you know, all of that valuable information along the way. I've got a really clear picture and I might only need to go, right, I'm missing something for this student in this area, I just want to target that for them in terms of capturing, um, you know, a piece of evidence that supports yes, yep. where they're at. Um, something that I found quite valuable along the way. And it's probably only something that I 
kind of got to in the last few years when I really saw the value of doing that, particularly when I'm engaging with parents, but also that formal reporting period, really, I found for me lessened the load of sitting and writing report comments for, you know, your English, maths, your general comment. And, you know, for some teachers, they've got comments for other KLAs. I found that just a really valuable process. Yeah, definitely. Like that. Love that idea. Yeah. It kind of leads into our evaluation of teaching and learning programs. What does that look like for you? How do you effectively evaluate the programs that you are using and teaching? So there's obviously two things we do. So we have obviously stage um, stage meetings and we will often be discussing programs or units of work um, as we're teaching them or say at the end of a unit of work, like let's talk about that, what worked, what didn't work. Um, because, you know, chances are we do like an, uh, an odd and even year teaching cycle with our stage-based classes. So some of those units we will come back to again in maybe in, in two years time but it's good that we've we've made notes about them um so that we can refer back to them when we come to those units again we can go oh hang on let's look at those notes and make adjustments before we teach or maybe it could have just been that particular cohort and we think no looking at those that evaluation from last time um no let's keep things the way they were yeah um so we have those discussions around what what worked what didn't work what did we find challenging um were there particularly any activities that just didn't didn't go the way that we thought they would what would we do differently next time um one thing particularly in literacy and numeracy we talk a lot about what didn't the kids get like what didn't work um, what do we need to reteach? How are we going to, because we can't just go, oh, well, we're not going to do that again. We need to talk about what what didn't work, what haven't they understood, and how are we going to incorporate that in the learning moving forward? Mm. Because it's important that we still do cover that and cover it well. Um, and then I guess the other process we have is obviously that formal sort of supervisor program checking process. Uh, so at my current school, we do... Um, those program checks we program and we've got like a programming checklist that sort of basically has what you have to have in your your program when you hand it into your supervisor we do those um each semester so we will do um the first one will be in term one usually sort of mid to late term one based on um, what's been taught so far and um covered and if you sort of got some of those projected units of work ahead of time then we've got obviously reports so I tend to not really look at programs too much in depth in term two but we'll maybe have a little brief check after sort of reports and everything is over Um, but it's not a real thorough in-depth sort of one it's not not as I guess in-depth as the, the one in semester one obviously in um term three again we do that sort of mid to late term three we do a really thorough check um, of programs with that checklist and again in term four we'll have one sort of outside of the reporting sort of timeline and schedule which is I guess a a bit more informal again um, because we're hoping we've had that check in term three so the term four program if there was anything that wasn't clear or needed to be sort of followed up on it's sort of 
sorted out in the term four version. Yeah. Yeah. What about yeah, you, no. Alice? Um, we have our, you know, formal supervisory checks where the leadership team will sit and look at um, the programs. We don't, however, do that evaluation with the stage, which I'm, I'm, I've got my takeaway. <laughs> I'm um, thinking would be really a beneficial process, particularly as we, as we're heading towards the end of term four, looking at, you know, the units that we've taught and the approaches that we've used, how effective they were for the students that we had. Um, thinking about who benefited from the learning, who didn't yeah. benefit and why might that have been the case? Um, what evidence do we have to support to support that? Um, I uh, have, um, like you were mentioning earlier, just a box kind of at the end of my units where I'm yeah, writing yeah. down that, you know, almost like that summative evaluation of, of what is, has occurred and, again, looking at who benefited, who did not and why. But we, um, Aaron and I, went to an aspiring principals leadership program. We had the very, it was very exciting guest of Viviane Robinson. And if you ever get the chance to listen to her speak, I highly recommend it. Mm, very absolutely. engaging. Um, and she gave us some key kind of questions that you could use in an evaluative process to look at teaching quality. And we wanted to kind of share those with you because they were really, really valuable, um, we thought anyway. And um, one of the things that Viviane talks about is that quality teaching is really at you know the heart of of what we do and lots of the time when we reflect and we evaluate on our the learning that's occurred and and the growth of the students it's very much around oh you know it was a good unit kids is you know we're all engaged I really enjoyed teaching this one and I know early on in my career that's what my evaluations look like and probably said for the majority of them um, in the first few years of my teaching career but the questions that she gave us really kind of took it away from you know not specifying so much around how teachers should teach but around the reflection on student achievement and flipping it in terms of you know how well did they meet those outcomes and what kind of misunderstandings do they still have so one of the questions um, or a couple of the questions that she had that focus on student success on outcomes were what are the remaining misunderstandings of particular students and how will you go about addressing them? Which I think is a really powerful, yes, powerful evaluative question. And it's probably not one that we would tend to use too often. I think it's um, something we look at, oh, yep, these students kind of achieved the outcome and these ones didn't. But even 
you know, digging that little bit deeper and looking at the misunderstandings that are still at play is probably that kind of next level in terms of evaluative practice. Um, She also goes, ask the questions around what do you know about the student's understanding of the big ideas? So when you're looking at, you know, your big, the big ideas in terms of um, the concepts that you're addressing, how, you know, how do you know the students have achieved that? What does that look like? What's the evidence that supports that? Um, how well were the students engaged? And how do you know? Yeah. Um, I think is another important one. Adding that how do you know, I think, forces you to think about the evidence that you've got that tells you that they were engaged. Um, and active engagement, I think, is, is important to kind of differentiate there, not that just passive compliant engagement, but that real active um, active engagement for students. And another one she had were how are these activities, resources, assessments aligned to the intended outcomes, which I think is another nice one that focuses it on the quality teaching components, you know, that quality of experiences, the quality of activities that you're providing, looking at how well they were ended up being aligned to, you you know, what you were intending to address, I think is another important question that we could use to evaluate programs. Yeah, I, I loved those questions. I thought they were really great. Um, things to reflect on and ponder when we are evaluating teaching and learning Um, Mm. like you said and really looking at how do you know what's the evidence what's the the Mm. proof that you have to to back that up Um, yeah yeah where's your where's your data coming from that you've got to support that evidence of impact yeah yeah and I think also looking at um student growth over the course of that learning experience is another really important part of that evaluation you know how much did the students grow you know if you're looking at it at a spelling unit it might you know you might be your fortnightly focus how much have the students grown over the course of that fortnight comparatively to the last time you taught that um, concept what does that look like what was different between then and now and all that kind of stuff really helps teachers to kind of hone in on good practice and the practices having the most impact on their students in their context. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of resources do you utilise the most to support your planning and programming practice? So I think one of the things that we have done at my current school the last couple of years to support planning and programming in a sense of trying to make it a little bit easier. We've had a really heavy focus on say our literacy and numeracy and really changing what that looks like. And so for a lot of teachers, that's been a lot of, I guess, cognitive load, looking at changing the way we teach. So changing the way we program. So we decided to try and make the programming burden a little bit lighter. Um, We have purchase subscriptions so inquisitive is one that all of our teachers have access to and they are the units of work that we use for those other key learning areas so like 
science, things like that. So um, it takes obviously two huge areas of learning. So mm. we use it for say um, history, geography, science, and technology. It takes those, those programming loads off people. We definitely don't want people to just like take it and copy paste, yeah. but using it as a base of this is the unit of work and take it and tweak it. Um, we've used those resources because they're quality units of work to just try and I guess make the the load a little bit less for our teachers when we've had such a big shift in the way we were teaching and programming in those other big areas we were finding teachers going it's just too much I'm a bit feeling a bit overwhelmed and trying to keep up with it all so we've we've sort of put those out there um, and purchase like school-wide subscriptions for those to help teachers. Yeah. Um, the other one which has been helping teachers with um, is Aboriginal perspectives. It's been a really big focus at our current school and making sure that's embedded in all of our programs. So we purchased um, a school license for Wingaroo kids yeah. um, and that supports teachers with lessons, resources to help them implement Aboriginal perspectives with teachers feeling maybe not confident about how to teach it or what resources to use. It's, it's all there and there's lessons that we can take and use and um, weave into our existing units of work that help us um, Mm. make sure that we are keeping those focuses because we understood that for some people that is a a bit overwhelming or a bit challenging Mm. if they feel they're not, um, they're not confident in that area. So they're two, I guess, resources as a school we've externally sourced to support programming for our teachers. Yeah, nice. I like that idea because I know, you know, some teachers, not all teachers, but some teachers feel like they may not do Aboriginal education and, and, you know, embedding those cultural perspectives justice or they don't want to, you know, present something in the wrong way that yes you know yeah. um, offends the students thing. or yeah so that's you know that's a great way to really support that and develop that you know that confidence and capacity in your staff I really like that idea yeah what about you Alice um one of the ones that I used heavily particularly looking um at your science and technology um learning things like history and geography is ABC education. They have a lot of great um, short clips and little articles that you can, you can draw upon to support students in that area. Um, if you have access to it, ClickView is another one that has some great yeah. things on there. Um, oh, I think it's Kids News was another really good resource that I drew upon particularly um, in the older grades, you know, upper primary, middle primary, depending on the type of article that you're looking for, gives you texts based on a range of topics um, that gives kids, you know, different kid-friendly ways of looking at, you know, historical events or, you know, geographical information or scientific information and it just kind of helps to put it in kid-friendly language and there's audio versions that you know that kids can play and they can follow along and read um, which is which is a nice little valuable tool so they're kind of 
a couple of ones that I utilized when, you know, I'm in the process of planning and programming. And um, I know we were talking before the show around really drawing upon um, plan two and your progressions yes. as part of that planning process. What does that look like for you when you're sitting to look at a unit, particularly in literacy and numeracy? Yeah, and like that, you've said that's a big resource we use along along with that is all of those sort of assessments that are now being built into to that. So the the IFSA for numeracy and mm. you know the phonemic and phonological awareness assessments and things like that that are now available and feed straight into Plan Two um, as a great way of sort of doing some pre assessment and getting a real clear picture of where students are at to inform those teaching um, cycles. Yeah. Yeah, nice. I think we are at the end of the episode. Takeaway time. Takeaway time. Okay. What's your takeaway? I've got two um, nice. and, and I love it's probably something I haven't done enough of um, and just you saying it and talking about it was the grid. I used to be a grid person and yep. I have my grid with all the squares with all the kids' names and I would take notes um, on the go. I do that obviously very, very like a lot for say our literacy and our writing and Mm. things like that. But in those other areas, I just, I don't do it. And I probably need to look at just putting in some systems where I am doing that and writing things down for the benefit of, like you said, when you get to evaluation or reporting time and you've got notes that you've taken, you know, where it talks about that they were really engaged in something or they did a great thing on you know particular particular lesson or a particular activity Mm. um yeah that was a takeaway for me um to help with that evaluation process um particularly when we get to the end and we're talking about some of those questions you know how well were students engaged how do you know yeah yeah where's the evidence and if I've got that grid and I can take notes that's some evidence I can build into that yeah. Um, and then also use it for reports and report comments. And the other one was those Vivian questions that we talked about um, just before in the evaluation. The, the questions are really, I think, deeper than probably we tend to go mm. when we evaluate programs. I really liked that activity we did in lesson two. Do you know what I mean? It's, yes. it's thinking deeper and it's asking those questions of how do you know? What proof have yeah. you got? Um you know, asking us to look deeper and then take it to that next level, you know, like what are the misunderstandings and what are we going to do? How are we going to address these now? Because we can't just leave them and go, oh, too bad they didn't learn that. Mm. Where are we taking this from here? So I really love those questions that we we had from the the session with Vivian at the Aspiring Principles um, conference was really great. Yeah, and I think... um connected to this episode we might be able to put up a little graphic that had those questions on there and put them in the show notes for our listeners um my takeaway is still definitely the um the stage-based evaluation process and i'm thinking that combining vivian's questions with that process around you know evaluating our practice might be really beneficial in helping us to dig that little bit deeper and looking at, you know, the learning experiences that we've provided, the misunderstandings that the kids still have, looking at, you know, 
perhaps the trends that we're finding across the grade um, in that process and looking at then going, okay, well, if all of the students still are misunderstanding this, what is it about the way that we've, you know, perhaps taught that concept or that, um, you know, key content point that didn't hit the mark? Yeah. You know, looking at reevaluating how could we better approach this so that these misunderstandings don't still occur, you know, next time for the next lot of students. And then if this is what we're noticing now, what are we going to do about it to address that misunderstanding for the, for the current kids that we've identified? Um, it, are the things that I think I'm going to take away. They're my, my big. Two good takeaways. Big takeaways. Yeah. And I think it's a perfect time of year as we're kind of, you know, towards the end of term four here in Australia, thinking, you know, starting to think more evaluatively about. Yes, we're getting to that point. Yeah, the pointy end, the meaty end of wrapping it up and evaluating and, you know, the busy craziness of term four. I think it's important that we take the time to evaluate can often be the term that we miss that. Yes, we miss it. We just don't get to it. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely going on the list to do, top of the list. Excellent. (laughs) I hope that you took some key takeaways from tonight's planning and programming episode. We'd love to hear what your takeaways were or if you have some tips and tricks around planning, programming, annotating and evaluation, or even resources you use to support programming. We'd love to hear those. You can connect with us on our socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Teacher Takeaway Podcast. As always, love to hear from you, your suggestions for topics. I think we're needing some, I think we've worked our way through most of them. So we're looking for some more. We might have to put out a little suggestion box, get some more uh Yes, we've got so, a few guests, a few guests coming up and then we'll be wrapping it up and looking for new topics for the new year, which is a scary yeah, thought. It is, isn't it? We do have some exciting new guests. Should we should we do a little name drop? Should we get people we could, excited? We could feel free to drop the name. Oh, who have we got coming on, Aaron? Who's our next? Uh, I think guest? our next episode is the infamous Peter DeWitt, all the way from New York. So he'll be oh, joining so us for fun. our next episode. And the yes, I'm a, a little bit bit um, fangirling for that episode. Very excited to chat oh, with massively. Peter. Um, so tune in for that one. That should be our next episode. And yep. then I think after that we've got John Shambari from the US yes. as well. Yeah. So two really great, um, yeah, two really great interviews coming up. Hopefully yeah. our next two episodes. Peter yes, and John back yeah. to back. So stay tuned for those. Yes. Oh, it's so exciting. Can't wait to bring those to you. Until next time. Bye for now.